Welcome back. Hope you've enjoyed the previous podcast. Uh, in today's podcast, I'm going to cover a couple things. I'm going to discuss the X dividend date and what that means to a dividend investor. And that X is EX. I'll get into that in specifics. I'm also going to discuss a specific type of dividend stock called a REIT or a real estate investment trust. But before we dive into that subject, I, I really want to talk a little bit about what happens when you're not left to manage your portfolio. You want to make sure your family's secure, your kids are secure. I've always said that my wife and my kids will be my wife and my kids even after I'm gone. And I'll work my hardest to ensure their future. There's so many potential answers to this question. I and mean, we could get into a lengthy discussion on asset allocation and at, look at ways to diversify investments. And we talked about that in previous podcasts. But what if they don't have the passion that I have to manage a portfolio? Well, I ran across an article the other day about this subject, and it details what Warren Buffett has to say on the matter. I'm assuming you all know who Warren Buffett is. He's just simply one of the most successful investors in history. Well, he's laid out a plan for investing for his family to be followed when he's gone, and here's what his plan is. And it's about as simple as it gets. In his 2013 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, he wrote that the instructions in his will state that the trustee is to invest 90% of the money in the low-cost S&P 500 index fund, with the remaining 10% to be invested in short-term government bonds. Now, Warren's nickname is the Oracle of Omaha, and he suggested that the trustee invest the larger amount into a Vanguard index fund. He didn't specify, however, whether he preferred the Vanguard 500, a mutual fund that tracks the S&P 500, or the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF which is an exchange-traded fund that also tracks the S&P 500. So why does Warren Buffett like this simple investing plan for his family after he's gone? Well, he wrote to Berkshire shareholders, quote, I believe the trust's long-term results from this policy will be superior to those attained by most investors, whether pension funds, institutions, or individuals who employ high-fee managers. Based on history, Buffett's take is spot on. Earlier this year, the S&P Dow Jones indices released an annual report that compared the average performance of actively managed funds versus the S&P 500 index. For the ninth consecutive year, the majority of fund managers failed to top the S&P 500. Now, keep in mind that this was a runaway bull market, and it was pretty easy to pick great stocks. But interestingly, over 85% of large cap funds have underperformed compared to the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. Nearly 92% of these funds have trailed the S&P 500 over the last 15 years. One big reason behind this dismal track record for actively managed funds is their high fees. Buffett likes the low-cost approach with index funds. As an example, the Vanguard 500 index fund has an annual expense ratio of 0.14%. While the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF annual expense ratio is a super low 0.03%. So speaking of high fund managers, you can negotiate their fees. Some will charge you by the hour, some by the amount of your investments. In that arena, it's usually about 1% to 2% of your annual, annual portfolio. So if you have a million-dollar stock portfolio and you're paying $10,000 a year for their advice, it, it better be good advice. The industry belief is that you can take 3 to 4% of your portfolio each year and not run out of money, and now i got to give them 1% too. And I, I've always thought, I guess it would be good to be a financial planner, and if you had $20 million clients, that's a 1%, that's a cool $200,000 a year. 
So now you compare that to the 0.14% expense ratio of the Vanguard 500 index, which is a passive fund and not one you'll have to be a hands-on manager. And using the million-dollar portfolio as an example, instead of paying $10,000, you'd only be paying $1,400 and outperforming a fee-based portfolio manager. So depending on the interest my wife or kids have in actively managing a fund, this is the investment advice I will give my family upon my exit from this planet. You may ask, why don't I do that now? And the honest answer is I really enjoy studying, buying, and selling stocks. It's fun for me. It keeps my mind active as I age. And if it gets to be too laborious, I'll switch to the strategy. Uh, the only difference is I most likely would not put 10% into government bonds. Net, this is something to think about. Strategize and gain the agreement with your significant other and your children. Now, moving on. I want to move on and talk a little bit more about dividends. Recall from previous episodes that there are companies that pay dividends to the stockholders on a prescribed date. These are payments made from a company's profits to their shareholders. What I want to talk today about is the X dividend date, EX dividend date, what it means. First, you can find the X dividend date on the stocks that pay dividends on the same Yahoo Finance page, and it's just below forward dividend yield and yield. It will simply say X dividend date. So as an example, if you looked at Procter & Gamble, it will say 7-18-19. So what does that date mean? What is the X dividend date? The X dividend date describes a stock that is trading without the value of the next dividend payment. So a buyer who purchases a stock on the X dividend date or after does not get the dividend. It is The dividend is paid to whoever owned the stock the day before the X dividend date. So using the P&G example, if you own the stock on 717, you're entitled to the quarterly dividend. If you bought it the day before, you get the dividend. You can only own the stock for one day and you can get the entire quarterly dividend. Because buyers aren't entitled to the next dividend payment on the X date, theoretically, the stock will usually drop in price by the amount of the expected dividend. And I say theoretically because there's so many other influence on stock prices, I've just not really seen it happen on a dollar to dollar basis. When a company decides to declare a dividend, its board of directors establishes a record date. This is the date when a person must be on the company's record as a shareholder to receive the dividend payment. Once the record date is set, the ex-dividend date is also set according to the rules of the stock exchange on which the stock is traded. This usually means that the ex-date is one business day before the record date. For example, if a company declared a dividend on March 3rd with a record date of April 11th, the ex-dividend date would be Friday, April 8th, because that is one business day before the ex-date. The ex-date occurs before the record date because of the way stocks trades are settled. When a trade occurs, the record of that rec record of that transaction isn't settled for one business day. That is known as the T plus one settlement. Thus, if an investor owned the stock on April 7th, but sold it on April 8th, they would still be the shareholder of record on April 11th because the trade hasn't fully settled. However, if the investor had sold the stock on April 7th, then the trade would have settled by April 11th and the new buyer would be entitled to the dividend. Key to note is to make sure you know the X dates of the stocks you're either purchasing or selling. I don't usually sell a stock that's getting ready to pay the dividend for obvious reasons. I want to collect the dividend. Now, that should give you a good example and, and, and explain to you what the X dividend dates. Now, there are some really fun strategies on buying and selling X dates and you can substantially increase your annual yield. Now, I gotta say this right up front, a couple key caveats. This is not part of a low risk strategy. 
It's also not part of a beginner's guide to buying and selling stock. It requires that you have the ability to hold on to a stock if the market volatility causes a stock to have too big of a downturn. And it usually works best in a bull market like we've enjoyed for the last 10 years. Last, it's important to use very strong companies when you would expect the stock to recover if there's a downturn. So, so this is how it might work. Time the stock positions to an ex-dividend date means you earn the annual rate every month instead of every quarter. This means you can earn four times the stated annual dividend rate. For example, assume you have $5,000 to invest in 100 shares of three different stocks, all priced about the same and all yielding a 2% dividend each year. Hang with me on this. If you buy 100 shares of stock A before the ex-dividend date, then sell at a break-even or a small profit within a month, the dividends, or the funds then, are freed up to repeat the trade in another stock, or let's call it stock B, whose ex-dividend date comes in the second month. The same steps are repeated to move into stock C or the third month. So three stocks could be exchanged in this manner for the full year, maximizing dividend yield. That's a lot of buying and selling, but in this simplified example, you can turn a 2% annual yield into a much higher annual yield by timing your moves. The quarterly dividend, 0.5%, is earned every month by moving money in and out of the stock. What that does is it quadruples the annual dividend income to 8% instead of 2%. Is this improvement worth the risk? Well, to a conservative investor focused on fundamentals, it might not be. Uh, such an investor like myself uh, will probably prefer to find a high-quality company as a long-term value investment paying at a higher-than-average dividend yield and just simply hold on to the shares for the long term. However, a trader who is willing to take greater risks, market risk, will find this timing strategy very attractive and more willing to pursue it. I've done it. It's a lot of work. It's fun for me. So let me give you a, a real live example. I'm going to throw a lot of data so you might want to grab a pencil and paper and just write it down on a, on a notebook. Let's take $10,000 and buy three very strong companies. Let's say Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, and Kimberly-Clark. With $10,000, you could buy 83 shares of Procter & Gamble at $120 a share. And if you owned it for the entire year, you'd have a 2.43% dividend yield and make about $248. P&G pays their dividends in July, October, January, and April. Or you could sell any time after the X date and reutilize that $10,000 and then buy Johnson & Johnson. You can buy 78 shares at today's price and they have an annual yield of just under 3%, so on a $10,000 investment, your dividend yield will be $300, $296 bucks actually. Well, J&J pays their dividends in February, May, August, and November. So in one month, you own and collect the dividend, and then you sell that to buy Kimberly-Clark. And again, the yield is 3%. Kimberly-Clark pays their dividends in March, June, September, and December. So what, what have we done here? We took the same $10,000 investment and owned three different stocks four times in each year. And if you notice, the dividend payments, we've got January through December covered. So that's getting dividend payments 12 times a year, once a month. Now, the results, if you did that, you increased your yield from an average of 2.79% if you put $10,000 into each of them to a yield of 8.5% or almost three times the 2.79% yield. We really made $10,000 work like $30,000. Now, in a perfect world, you can execute this, but it's not going to be easy. 
I'm sure you can see the pitfalls of market fluctuations and the timing of the market and keeping track of all the X dates because they do change from year to year. But that's why it's important to buy strong companies that you have no problem owning for the long term because if something goes wrong, you just hold on to the company. And that's a good example with these three stocks. Now, it's not for the faint of heart, but for me, it's a bit of fun. So now I'm going to move on to a topic, a type of dividend stock, and it's called a REIT or a real estate investment trust. But let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, Congress established real estate investment trust in 1960 as an amendment to the cigar excise tax extension of 1960. The provision allows inv individual investors to buy shares in commercial real estate portfolios that receive income from a variety of properties. Properties included in an RAIT portfolio may include apartment complexes, data centers, healthcare facilities, hotels, uh, cell towers, energy pipelines, office buildings, storage, self-storage, uh, warehouses, etc. Most REIT specialize in a specific real estate sector, focusing their time, energy, and funding on that particular segment of the entire real estate horizon. However, diversified and specialty REITs often hold very different types of properties in their portfolios. So how a REIT works? Well, most REITs have a straightforward business model. They REIT leases space and collects rents on properties and distributes that income as dividends to the shareholder. To qualify as a REIT, a company must comply with certain provisions in the IRS code. These requirements include to primarily owning income-generating real estate for the long term and distribute that income to the shareholders. So specifically, they have to meet uh, requirements. The key one for me is they have to return a minimum of 90% of its taxable income in the form of dividends every year. So that's why the dividend payments usually yield such a nice yield. They have to invest at least 75% of the total assets in real estate, cash, or U.S. securities. They have to receive at least 75% of its gross income from real uh, property rents, interest on mortgages, financing the real estate property, or from sales of real estate. And they, have a, they need to have a minimum of 100 shareholders after the first year of existence. So, key takeaways. A real estate investment trust is a company that owns, operates, or finances income-producing properties. Equity REITs own and manage real estate properties. Mortgage REITs hold or trade mortgages and hold mortgage-backed securities. REITs generate a steady income stream for investors, but they do offer little in the way of capital appreciation, for the most part. Most REITs are publicly traded like stocks, making them highly liquid, unlike most real estate investments. So, as I've said, there are several types of REITs. The funds have classifications that indicate the type of business they do and can be further classified depending on how their shares are bought and sold. Equity REITs are the most common form of the enterprise. These entities buy, own, and manage income-producing real estate. Revenues come primarily through rents and not from reselling of the portfolio properties. Then there's mortgage REITs, also known as MREITs. They lend money to real estate owners and operators. The lending may be either directly through mortgages and loans or indirectly through the acquisition of mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities are investments holding pools of mortgages issued by government-sponsored enterprises. Their earnings come primarily from the net interest margin, the spread between the interest they earn on mortgage loans and the cost of funding the loans. Uh, hybrid REITs enterprises 
hold both physical rental property and mortgage loans in their portfolio. Depending on the stated investing focus of the entity, they may weigh the portfolio to more property or more mortgage holdings. Let me give you a couple examples of some REITs that you can plug in and look up. One of the ones uh, that I own is AGNC. It's American Capital Agency Corporation. It's a well-known U.S. investment company and pays an annual dividend of, get this, 12.21%. And just as an FYI, they pay their dividends monthly. AGNC invests in mortgage-backed securities as an example. I love this because, again, I need to generate income. I don't expect this stock to have much growth, but in the price of a yield of 12%, I'm very happy with that. Another REIT I own is EPR Properties, and it's a small-cap growth REIT that specializes in entertainment and recreation venues such as theaters, theme parks, casinos. EPR pays almost a 6% dividend and pays on a monthly basis as well. Now, continue with these stocks as an example, and like I said, I own them both right now. Say you had $100,000 that you would like to invest in two REITs. Let's say you pick these two stocks. Now, they would generate $9,000 a year in dividend payments to you, or a 9% yield. Now, again, these stocks don't usually show much stock appreciation, so I'm relying on the dividend payments. To find and investigate REITs, you simply Google high-yield REITs and you'll be on your way. Important for me to note, though, is that I do look at my metrics that I've discussed in previous podcasts. My key ones for REITs are uh, dividend payment consistency and beta. As I've articulated before, you can go to nasdaq.com to get the history of dividend payments on any stock. And beta, you get from Yahoo Finance. Both of these stocks have low betas and strong dividend historical payments with EPR on consistent having consistent increases as well. Now, REITs can play an important part of an investment portfolio. As with all the investments, they also have advantages and disadvantages. On the plus side, REITs are easy to buy and sell, as uh, you know, on most public exchanges. Uh, this feature really helps you with some of the traditional drawbacks of real estate. You know, traditionally, real estate's notoriously illiquid. Property can take a long time to sell or purchase, and its lack of transparency, as not all markets offer reliable information on taxes, ownership, zoning, etc. But REITs are regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they must file audited financial reports. Performance-wise, REITs offer attractive, risk-adjusted returns and stable cash flow. Also, a real estate presence can be good for a portfolio, diversifying it with different asset classes that can counterweight to equities or bonds. On the downside, as I've said, they don't give you much in terms of capital appreciation because they got to pay 90% of their income back to the investors. So only 10% of taxable income can be reinvested back to the enterprise to purchase new holdings. So dividends received from REIT holdings are taxed as regular income. One primary risk for REITs is that they are subject to real estate market fluctuations. Also, like most investments, they don't guarantee a profit or insure against losses. So a primary risk for REITs is that they are subject to real estate market fluctuations, which makes sense. And also, like most investments, they don't guarantee a profit or insure against a loss. Recapping today's podcast, we talked about what to do in the event that your family doesn't want to manage a portfolio like I manage. And I gave you a, a good example of what Warren Buffett might do. Uh, Warren Buffett's always got a lot of good advice, and anytime he talks, I listen. Second thing we talked about was the ex-dividend date. And important how important it is to you and how to collect your dividends and whether or not you qualify to collect the dividends. And then lastly, we talked about a good dividend 
group of stocks called Real Estate Investment Trusts, which gives you exposure to real estate and pays very strong dividends. So that wraps it up for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Appreciate your time and God bless y'all.